We'll begin with a reading by Glenn Thomas Rideout called God is No Noun. God is no noun, and certainly not an adjective. God is at least a verb, and even that shrinks her. God is not so much a woman as she resides in the improbable hope of brown mothers. God is not so much a man as he is at work in the memory of my grandfather's laughter. God is not trans. God swims in the tears of the one who sees her real self in the bathroom mirror at long last. God is not black, neither is he white. God is waiting in the contradictions of songs in slave shacks. I have seen God in alabaster smiles of children at play. We are getting Michelangelo all wrong. God is not the bearded one, surrounded by angels, floating over the Sistine. He is not Adam, with his muscled back pressing up against the earth. No. God is in the closing inch of space between the reaching fingers. Don't believe for a moment that God is Catholic. (laughs) For God's sakes, he isn't even human. Have you heard the wood thrush when the sun glistens on the Huron River? Can you see the flowers, how they speak to the bees without a word? Still, God is no spring blossom or wood thrush. God is neither the sun nor the bee. God is what you see in the blossom. God is what you hear in the river. And suddenly discover how much of it is part of you. To be clear, God is not you. (laughs) God is somewhere in the 14 billion years which have come to mean that you are. God is, after all, at least a verb. She is neither Pharaoh's rod nor Moses' staff. We must be the ones to cease slavery. She is not interested in blame, neither does she offer praise. Truth and gratitude are ours to breathe. She will not have your answers. She is too large for answers. She dances too wildly to be fastened by them, and answers their nouns anyway. God is at least a verb. Twirling in the radiant reds of spring blossoms, singing in the rare silences between rapid opinions, tending the tears of dark-skinned deaths, learning in tiny alabaster smiles. God is waiting in the space between the fingers that might connect. He is waiting for us to stop naming her. She is waiting for us to see all of him. God is waiting to be unshrunk. This Mother's Day, we turn our attention not just to the complex relationship we have with our own mothers and the idea of motherhood, 
but also to the complex idea of gender and gender balance. Today, we will hear stories of women who had the courage to break away from cultural norms and express their female needs and aspirations. Gender balance, or gender equality, means that the aspirations and the needs of all genders are valued and considered. And though today we focus on women, I want to acknowledge that that is only one part of gender equality. We continue to expand our understanding of what gender is. It is no longer a binary or even a continuum of gender, but something so much more complex, so much more fluid than those models will ever allow. True gender balance explores the needs and aspirations of all genders, not just male, not just female. Margaret Fuller, in her book, Women of the 19th Century, considered the first feminist book in America, wrote these very wise words about gender. Male and female represent two sides of a great radical dualism, but in fact they are perpetually passing through one another. Fluid hardens to solid, solid rushes to fluid. There is no wholly masculine male, no purely feminine woman. History jeers at the attempts of psychologists to bind great original laws by the forms which flow from them. They make a rule. They say from observation what can and what cannot be. In vain. Nature provides exceptions to every rule. She sends women to battle and sets Hercules spinning. She enables women to bear immense burdens, cold and frost, and she enables man, who feels maternal love, to nourish an infant like a mother. Margaret Fuller, who lived from 1810 to 1850, still probably holds more first than any other American woman. She was the first editor of the transcendental magazine, The Dial. Can you imagine being the editor for the likes of Ralph Waldo Emerson, William Ellery Channing, and Henry David Thoreau? She managed to talk herself into desk privileges at Harvard, becoming the first woman ever to have use of the Harvard College Library. Margaret Fuller was also the first US woman journalist, editor, and professional literary critic of any gender in the United States. She was also a Unitarian. One of many of the Unitarian women who began to expand our religious perspectives in both our country and in our faith. It was Jose Ortega Bassat who said, each generation stands on the shoulder of its predecessors like acrobats in a vast human pyramid. The women at the turn of the century who created a prophetic sisterhood certainly stood on Margaret Fuller's shoulders, as well as many other notable women who refused to be dominated by a culture who told them that their domain was at home, docile, gentler, quieter, and most certainly always less than. And though Unitarian and Universalist faiths were two separate religions before 1961, both of those liberal theologies, including openings for women to find and claim a space. Universalism offered salvation for every soul, and Unitarianism proclaimed belief 
in all humans using their God-given blessings of reason and thought to interpret the Bible, faith, and life. I first discovered the prophetic sisterhood through a black and white photo that got my attention. It was one of those pictures of a woman with a high lacy collar and she seemed to be looking right at me. Her image beckoned me through time. Some of you I know are familiar with the woman in that photograph. Her name is Florence Buck. There was something about her steadfast gaze and the sound of her name, Florence Buck. It's a great name. It drew me right in. She sounded like my kind of heroine. Have you ever experienced that synchronicity with history when someone in the past, perhaps somebody who is your biological or spiritual family, seems to kind of have a telephone, through, of line, telephone line through time that speaks right to your soul? In fact, each thing I discovered about Florence's life felt like learning something about a friend long lost in time a hundred years ago. She too started her career as a teacher. She too had discovered Unitarianism as an adult, and she even lived in Wisconsin for a time. And it was Florence who led me to discover the stories of the women who 120 years ago created what we call a prophetic sisterhood. A sisterhood that would grow to include 21 women that would change our world. Women between 1880 and 1930 who somehow went to seminary, became ministers of dozens of Midwestern Unitarian churches in what was then called the Western Unitarian Conference. What we know today as the Midwest was then part of the great Western frontier. And though the suffrage movement began to organize as early as 1840 in the United States, the 19th Amendment that granted the women to vote didn't pass until 1918. Women were not allowed to vote at this time. So how did this happen? What are their stories? How did my friend Florence become the first woman to receive a doctoral degree in theology from Meadville Theological Seminary, the same school that I attend today? This particular sisterhood begins in Hamilton, Illinois, a mere 300 miles from here, on the banks of the Mississippi River, and it begins with a friendship. Mary Stanford, as a child, would amuse her family by preaching to them from a little tree stump in her backyard on the family farm in the 1850s. Now, at that time, women's roles were primarily domestic, and it was highly unusual to even hear women like I am today speak in public. Her mother, Louisa, was conventional, and she believed in a woman's proper place. Mary's role playing a minister was probably like a fan funny family story, a jest, an innocent impossibility to her family. But it was in her father's library, after he died when she was the age of nine, that she would come to find his books and journals. In them, she found that they were filled with heresies, heresies that stirred in her all the possibilities of what religion could be. There, she first discovered that many of her heroes, such as Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, had sought a rational faith, 
and they even believed that the Bible was fallible. She learned that she could choose to leave behind a judgmental God to believe in a loving God, that she could believe in natural laws instead of superstition, and that she could embrace the humanity of Jesus instead of the depravity of the human race. It opened a door inside of her, a path for her to find her own truth, her own voice. Perhaps you remember how that that door cracked open in your own life, a time when you could see through or past what you had been told to think about God and faith to something that felt more true, something that felt more real. Having that door cracked open, you begin to know that there is something more to discover. Yet, it still might take some time and some courage and some companionship to walk through that door of liberal religion, or perhaps even walk through a door of a Unitarian Universalist church. Fortunately for Mary, living next door was Eleanor E. Gordon. Eleanor was the same age as Mary, and her family, it might resemble your family. It included Unitarians, Baptists, Spiritualists, and they all debated with each other about their diverse religious beliefs. Eleanor was exposed to and read all the religious pamphlets she could get her hands on. This developed in her a very questioning nature. She brought her inquiries to Sunday school, and they were promptly shut down. When that happened, she simply decided to believe differently than what the traditional church had to offer her. Maybe you can see yourself in her Sunday school experience. I know that I can. Mary and Eleanor's Midwestern experiences provided them fertile ground to see how women often needed to break away from conventional societal roles. Mary had seen her conservative Presbyterian mother, Louisa, go on to manage the farm and six children alone without her father. And Eleanor's mother, she was a starch universalist, but she was sadly invalid, and it fell to Eleanor as the eldest child to help raise her siblings and manage the household. So both Mary and Eleanor were instilled firsthand with the knowledge of the strength and the capability that women truly possess. And this knowledge gave them the fortitude to pursue very unconventional dreams. The two gave each other courage, and they decided to become professional women and not to marry. Eleanor said, I have two hands and a brain of my own, and no one is going to tell me how to use them. (laughs) They made a pledge. They would work together for an enlightened religion, Mary wanted to become a Unitarian minister, and Eleanor at that time wanted to be a principal of a school. Both their families initially managed to pay for some college tuition, but within a year, they had to return home to help their families. So they became teachers, and they tried to acquire a higher education on their own, reading the likes of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Theodore Parker. And they were inspired by Emerson's direction, not only to attend to the divinity of Jesus, but to the divine revelation within each of us. There was a younger girl, a girl named Carrie Bartlett. 
She would often join Mary and Eleanor at the Gordons family orchard. She was the only daughter of a Mississippi steamship captain whose home port was in Hamilton, Illinois. She too refused to believe in a depressing Orthodox religion whose God inflicted pain on the innocent. She too was rebuked in Sunday school when she questioned the impossibility of a resurrection of Christ or why Jesus would send unbaptized children to hell. She confided her frustrations to her friends, Mary and Eleanor, and they validated her questions and they encouraged her to continue to learn and to continue to dream. One woman reaching out to another woman and then reaching out to another woman lending each of them the courage to speak their truth. At first, just to each other, but the roots of a prophetic sisterhood began to take hold through this sharing. In 1971, Mary created a literary society to have space to educate themselves and others in their community, and one of the speakers was Oscar Klute. He was a nearby Unitarian minister from across the river in Iowa. And he spoke on very controversial issues, such as reconciling spiritual, I'm sorry, reconciling religious beliefs with Darwin's theory of biological evolution. A great debate at the time, and strangely still today. He encouraged Mary and Eleanor to begin a church of their own. And so in 1879, they did. They began to hold weekly public worship. And within one year, they had 150 people attending regularly. Now, this got the attention of Jenkins Lloyd-Jones of the Western Unitarian Conference. He was the secretary, and he worked tirelessly in this area to advance the Unitarian cause. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones had also struggled to get liberal religious education and belief, I'm sorry, had also struggled, and he believed in religious education and in women's rights. It was his wife, Susan Barber, who worked at a, as a secretary at the Meadville Theological School when he was a student there. She tutored him and was his partner behind the scenes in all his ministerial roles. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones intimately knew the power of women behind the pulpit, and he believed they should be in the pulpit. And so he became a vital male ally for this emerging sisterhood. It was Jenkins Lloyd-Jones who recommended Humboldt, Iowa to Mary and to Eleanor. Humboldt, Iowa, they needed a principal and they needed a Unitarian minister. And it seemed like a perfect fit for this extraordinary duo. In August of 1880, the new pastor, Mary Sanford, and the principal, Eleanor Gordon, began their work in Humboldt, Iowa. They moved into a second floor apartment with no running water or gas. So they had to haul their water and their fuel up and all their waste and ashes and garbage out. That's all they could afford. Even for these Midwestern farm women, life in Humboldt was the hardest thing that Mary and Eleanor had ever experienced. Their official duties to the church and school alone were immense. The community had entrusted them with the responsibility to care for the spiritual needs and the education of their children. If you have lived in a small town, perhaps you too can imagine the immense weight of that trust. Of course, they also felt a deep obligation from within 
to serve the greater good, and to use this remarkable opportunity to make their childhood dreams finally come true. Mary preached that true religion must be, first and foremost, free religion, free from a rational dogma that discouraged personal growth. She believed that all human souls evolved in community, people making their common tasks divine by, quote, doing them in the spirit of love and helpfulness. And so they went far beyond a weekly Sunday pulpit service to serve the needs of the church family and the community during the rest of the week. Who needed care? Who needed tutoring, fuel, rent? How could we come together to help one another? They applied their religious ethics to the social issues and the current affairs going on in their community. They did local charity work, and they did community outreach. Doesn't this sound like our church today, the one that we know and love? The church that engages with local issues of oppression and gives part of our offering every week to local nonprofits? These women, they helped create that ministry, that church. It was a new integration of pastoral and preaching and public and community ministry that frequently had both of them working 18 hours a week for very little pay. The Humboldt Church, called the Unity Church, it succeeded. Additionally, their home and their church in Humboldt developed into a beacon for other women, such as Mary Edith Colson and Ida Holton, who were cared for and tutored there. Mary Edith would go on to work at Jane Addams Hall House in Chicago. Jane Addams is known as the mother of social work and won a Nobel Peace Prize for her work on these issues. Ida Holton became the minister of a neighboring town in Algona, Iowa, and would then go on to mentor a woman named Rowena Morris. Rowena Morris was later ordained by Third Unitarian in Chicago. Those of you familiar with the history of this church might recognize that name, Rowena Morris. She was also called to be a minister here briefly, and then, strangely enough, married Newton Mann, who was the very first minister of the Unitarian Church here in Kenosha. The sisterhood would continue to grow and to make change and justice in the world just by one woman reaching out to another woman and then reaching out to another woman, lending each other courage to find their truth, their faith, and build beloved community. Humboldt became a beacon where women could find mentors, a place to grow, a refuge, a retreat for Unitarian women ministers throughout the Midwest. Mary and Eleanor, they served Humboldt for five years. And when it was time for them to move on, there was a woman named Marion Murdoch. Marion was the first woman to ever graduate from the Meadville Theological School with a bachelor's degree in divinity. She had finally managed to receive that formal ministerial education that Marion Eleanor had craved so much. And with her sister Amelia, she was able to continue the ministry that they had begun in Humboldt. Marianne would go on to co-pastor with Reverend Carrie Bartlett Crane in Kalamazoo, Michigan at the People's Church. 
Do you remember her? Remember Carrie Bartlett? She was the daughter of that steamship boat captain who used to visit Mary and Eleanor back in Hamilton. Well, after attending Carthage College right here in Kenosha, she married and she became Carrie Bartlett Crane. And she broke all sorts of gender bar barriers as a journalist and a newspaper editor, and then finally as a minister. Now, the local assistant principal and the science teacher in Kalamazoo was a congregant at Marion and Carolyn's People's Church, and her name, well, her name was Florence Buck. Florence was new to liberal theology, but she saw a place for her scientific insights could coexist with her spiritual ones. Now, Marion and Florence developed a deep friendship and when it came time for Florence to attend Meadville Theological School, they would go together. Marion, with the assistance of Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, helped Florence secure a reduced rate of tuition and offered her friends support in seminary while she did postgraduate work. Florence Buck was ordained at the All Souls Church in Chicago during the 1893 World's Parliament of Religions during the infamous World Columbian Exhibition Fair in Chicago. Florence Buck and Marion Murdoch, they became partners in ministry and in life, serving as co-ministers in Cleveland for six years and then moving to Wisconsin. Marion served the Unitarian Congregation in Geneva, Illinois, and Florence served the First Unitarian Church of Kenosha, Wisconsin, on this very site. Florence liked to call her religion doing and being in the community. During her time here in Kenosha, from 1901 to 1910, Florence would speak on behalf of women in leadership and society and suffrage, not just here, but throughout the state and the Midwest. She would also help care for the poor and the needs of women and family, families locally. She helped find, found the local playground association here in Kenosha to force the city to provide playgrounds for children. During her ministry, a Gothic-style stone church was built in 1907, then called the Simmons Memorial Unitarian Church, and now known as the Bradford Unitarian Universalist Community Church of Kenosha, Wisconsin. This church. At the dedication of this church on September 22nd, 1907, these words were spoken by Newton Mann. Future generations of rational worshipers as they wander about this place or come under these sacred roofs will recall with gratitude and reverence the steadily open hand the rare foresight, the love of beauty and truth, which through a long lifetime so shone out in Kenosha as to be in permanence a refreshment to the human soul. Connection through time and purpose. We are walking in the shadows of luminaries who have lit our way. This sisterhood, it does fade. Cynthia Tucker Grant's book, Prophetic Sisterhood, insightfully delves into all the complex stories of these women's lives, but you will have to read the book to hear more stories.
It takes decades for women in our faith to become a sisterhood again. But it still gives me goosebumps. I can feel the ripples of our ancestors echoing in us in this space, under this sacred roof. These women, they reimagined what faith could do. They expanded our religious community and how it serves and takes care of one another. This prophetic sisterhood, now it lives in us. We are still here, believing we can make the world a better place by speaking our truth and applying our religious ethics to social issues and current affairs. One person reaching out to another person on our journeys, each making space for one another, offering a hand, listening to one another's truth, bearing witness, seeing in another that divine spark, and trusting that love is something, if you give it away, you get back something more. Each one of us carry a responsibility to continue the legacy of our spiritual ancestors. Today, we too must continue to push back on a dominant culture, a culture that tells many of us that our truth is not real or worthy, that tells us we are less than because of our gender or our color or our ability or our class or our choices. Theodore Parker once said, the whole race of humans is needed to do justice to the whole truth. We are a faith of inviting in, and that radical welcome, that wide open invitation to truth calls us to prepare ourselves and to lean in to all that is needed to fulfill that invitation to find a way to welcome the aspirations and the needs of the whole human family. That's what we're here to do. That's our sacred service. We are stronger when we stand together, reaching out to one another. Blessed be, amen, and shalom.